The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Indeed, we gather here in the nave of Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue, across the airwaves of WBUR 90.9 FM, and via internet signals at WBUR.org, with hearts and voices uplifted in the praise of God. This week, we continue our National Summer Preacher Series, focusing around the theme of Darwin and faith. In this year of the bicentennial of Darwin's birth, and the sesquicentennial of the publication of his landmark on the origin of species. We welcome to the pulpit today the Reverend Dr. Dean Snyder, Senior Minister of Foundry United Methodist Church in Washington, D.C. Furthermore, Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett leads the Marsh Chapel Choir in music bringing out the theme of creation, especially selections from Franz Joseph Haydn's oratorio, The Creation. Soloists this morning are Mr. Graham Wright and Mr. Stephen Reed. Dean Hill sends his regards as he is away in these weeks, preaching the gospel in the voice of Marsh Chapel across the country. As you are so moved, we would invite your participation in our life together by presence, response, support, and ministry among us. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
us pray. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you, and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated for a silent confession during the singing of the Kyrie. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends more to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. 
For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. The word of the Lord. Let us say together verses from Psalm 24 with the Antiphon. the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Beloved, let us stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri, the reading and the reading of the Gospel. Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Glory to you, O Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, It is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter, Herodias, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. 
She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. I am grateful uh, to Dean Hill for the invitation to be part of this preaching series. Uh, Bob and uh, Jan have also generously uh, shared their home with us while they are away and we are in Boston. Uh, we discovered last evening that they live within shouting distance of Fenway Park. And it was a, uh, it was a pleasure to sit in their living room last evening and to hear the loud cheers from Fenway Park and to know that the Red Sox were not playing our Washington Nationals. <laughs> we live, however, in hope. I want to say a word of thanks to your staff who have been so hospitable and gracious to us, to your uh, uh, eloquently, uh, eloquently done music, your musicians and singers who I listen to on my podcast, uh, on your podcast in Washington, D.C., uh, but who uh, are even more wonderful uh, here in person. Our theme this summer is Darwin and Faith, and our topic this morning is reading the Bible after Darwin. For those of us who love the Bible, Darwin has not made reading it any easier, has he? He's wrecked havoc with the opening chapters of the book, sure. But more than this, he has raised the question of where are we to discover the God of the Bible in a world of evolution and natural selection, a world where there seems little place left for God to be, little left for God to do. Darwin has compelled us to read the Bible anew, asking new questions. He hasn't made reading the Bible easier. I think uh, the Christian century writer Amy Freikholm is right when she says that most of us who are mainline Christians have made our peace with Darwin. We may not have grasped all the nuances of the scientific debate, she writes, but we have concluded that evolutionary science is good science, and therefore it must be compatible with good theology. We believe that evolution and natural selection are evidently part of God's method of shaping the natural world. We've accepted the thrust of Darwin's ideas. But she wonders whether most of us 
have really explored very carefully the implications of this for our understanding of the God of the Bible and the biblical story. I, for one, Frank Holmes says, do most of my thinking about science out of one mental box and my thinking about religion out of another mental box. And while she says, I think the content of the two boxes are compatible, I rarely try to work out the terms of the relationship. Perhaps, she adds, that's because the content of the two boxes are, when mixed, still combustible. There are implications here for the way we read the Bible 150 years after the origin of the species that we are still trying to figure out. I want to suggest that Darwin and the evolutionary sciences and their impact upon all of our ways of thinking, that Darwin and all the subsequent work that has been done has actually done those of us who love the Bible a favor. Darwin has not made it easier for us to read the Bible, but he has compelled it us, he has compelled us to read it more profoundly. And of course, it wasn't only Darwin. The same century that produced Darwin produced a higher biblical critical thought, this uh, gift of study which has taught us that the Bible is intricately layered and richly contextual. It is the same century that gave us Feuerbach and Marx and Freud. Lots Lots happened during that time, this age that produced Darwin, and all of these have done us a favor by compelling us to read the Bible more deeply, to look more deeply into scripture to find God, certainly Darwin too. Darwin with his radical commitment to discernible truth forced us to realize that we will not uh, find God uh, on the surface of the biblical story. We will not find God in the Bible's cosmology or its biology or its worldview or its superficial politics. No. We've got to look more deeply than this within the Bible to find God. An image that works here, I think, is the one the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. We have this treasure, he writes, in clay jars. And the clay jar he is talking about most of all is himself. Paul is a clay jar. His ideas are clay jars. His writing, even when they become scripture, are clay jars. A clay jar is disposable, it's temporary. It passes away. It is important only because of the treasure it contains. Someday the treasure will be poured into some other clay jar. The clay jar has only passing value. Our goal is to discern the treasure both held and hidden within the clay jar. And Darwin compels us to read the Bible this way to look into and beyond the clay jars to find the treasure, to look more deeply within scripture to find God. God 
is not found within the details of the seven days of creation in Genesis 1, mostly borrowed after all from Babylonian creation mythology. The details of the seven days are disposable. God is found if we are to find God deeper down within the story, within the form that pulls itself up out of the void, within the impulse to life and the drive toward intelligence. God is not found among the trees and the snakes of the Garden of Eden. The details of the Eden story are disposable. God is found if we are to find God deep down within the story, in the human capacity for good and evil, in the struggle within all of us between self-indulgence and responsibility. God is not found within the laws of the Pentateuch. We will not find God in the shells and the shelt knots of various and sundry commandments. We will not find God in the condemnations and abominations of Leviticus. Those laws are temporary and disposable. We've got to look deeper to find God. We've got to look at the pull within humanity to make law. The impulse within us to discern how we are meant to live morally. The specific laws themselves are clay pots, but they hold and hide the treasure of the awareness of moral possibility within the human spirit. This is where we will find God. And God will not be found in the various social and political structures of the Bible. The social and political orders of the Bible are all temporary and disposable. The imperfect biblical models of government are riddled with such institutions as slavery and the divine right of kings and patriarchy. These things are clay jars. If we want to find God, we must look beneath the superficial social and political institutions of the Bible to the human impulse to live together orderly and justly and in harmony. The flawed attempts of this in the biblical story are just temporary and passing pointers toward the longing for the realm of God. This is where we will find God in the Bible, the longing within us for the realm of God. God will not be found in the biblical theories of atonement and propitiation and substitutionary redemption. These are clay jars. They at the same time hold and hide treasure. God will be found deeper within the cross, within the human capacity for true altruism and self-giving and agape love. Darwin, not Darwin alone, but Darwin for sure. Darwin compels us to search more deeply in Scripture to find God, to look within and past the clay pots that hold and hide the treasure. Now, it is hard to tell how much of this Darwin himself knew in his lifetime. He went... Uh, 
from being a candidate for the Anglican priesthood as a young man to becoming an agnostic, but he wasn't a very good agnostic. Some days, even as an agnostic, he affirmed his belief in God. For some, you know, for some of our agnostic friends, agnosticism doesn't mean they can't bring themselves to believe in God. It just means that they can't bring themselves to believe in the God who is being imposed on them. I suspect it was this way with Darwin. A new book just published this year by Adrian Desmond and James Moore entitled Darwin's Sacred Cause. In the book, they study Darwin's personal papers and notes and even the scribblings in the margins of the books he read. And they come to the conclusion that Darwin's compulsion to discover the origins of humanity were motivated by his hatred of slavery. Slavery was one of the clay jars defended by many of its proponents as natural and biblical, just a part of the given way things are and have always been and will always be. And Darwin believed that natural selection undermined the legitimacy of slavery that was supported by natural and biblical theologies. A fascinating book by Keith Thompson entitled Before Darwin, Reconciling God and Nature, explores the debate about evolution. It was not a new idea when Darwin took it and studied it. The book explores the debate about evolution for the 150 years before Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species. And Thompson discovered that many of Darwin's predecessors and adversaries in the debate about evolution feared that the idea of evolution might lead to social change. They preferred to think that poverty and misery were the givens of nature, that they were part of the given and irreversible and uncorrectable order of things. It may well be that at some level of his being and intelligence, Darwin understood that the god of clay jars is an idol. And it may be that Darwin's passion for observable truth was an effort to liberate God from this misreading of the Bible as well as humanity. There's inspiration here for the struggles of our time, obviously the struggle to protect the integrity of science and the integrity of the academy from those who would corrupt them for ideological purposes. But also I think there's inspiration here for the ongoing struggle against racism and against patriarchy and against poverty and economic injustice and then in the struggle for gay and lesbian inclusion and equality. Part of the reason finding God in the depths rather than in the shallows of the Bible, part of the reason this is important is because it returns to us the Bible again as an agent of transformation in our lives 
and our world rather than as an endorser and supporter of the status quo. We wanted the Bible to give us information or theories or explanations or rationales or justifications or confirmations sometimes even of our biases. And what the Bible has wanted to give us instead is life. If we can find God in the depth of the Bible, perhaps we can find God again in the depths of the world we live in today and in the depths of our own lives. Perhaps reading the Bible after Darwin, perhaps finding God in the deep places of the Bible instead of the shallows will return the Bible to us as a book that has the capacity to transform our lives and our world. One of my heroes when I was, a, uh, when I was young uh, was a Southern Baptist preacher named Carlisle Marnie, 30 years gone now. Carlisle Marnie was once spending a couple days at a seminary in his homeland, the South. He wandered into a room where some of the seminary students were having a discussion. They were arguing about where the Garden of Eden had been located. Some thought it had been located in the Middle East. Others were arguing that it had been in Egypt. One of the students asked Carlisle Marnie where he thought the Garden of Eden had been. Marnie said, I know exactly where it was. It was at 1611 Locust Street, Knoxville, Tennessee. The students looked at him in wonderment, so he continued. It was at 1611 Locust Street in Knoxville, he said, that when I was a small boy, my mother gave me some money to go to the corner store to buy milk. When I got there, instead of buying milk, I bought candy, he said. I'd eaten the candy by the time I got home. When I got home, I hid in the hallway closet behind the coats. After a while, my mother came and opened the closet door and pushed aside the coats and looked at me and said, Carl, what have you done? So you see, he told the students, the Garden of Eden was located at 1611 Locust Street, Knoxville, Tennessee, in the closet behind the coats. Each of us has in our life a Garden of Eden. Each of us has in our life a Tower of Babel, an Egypt, a Red Sea, a Sinai, a wilderness, a promised land. Each of us has in our life a Jerusalem, a temple, a Babylon, an exile, a diaspora, a homecoming. Each of us has in our life a Bethlehem of Judea, a Capernaum, a Samaria, a Jerusalem, a Gethsemane, an upper room, a Golgotha, a betrayal, a denial. Each of us has in our life an empty tomb, a Pentecost, 
a road to Damascus, an isle of Patmos, a new Jerusalem, a heavenly city. If we can learn to find God in the deep places of the Bible, then perhaps we can rediscover God in the deep places of our lives and in the deep places of our world. Darwin has not made it easier for those of us who love the Bible to read it, but he has helped us read it more profoundly, to look into the Bible more deeply, to find our God.
seated. As we are called to prayer by the singing of Lead Me, Lord, we invite you to pray as you are so moved to best support the prayers of this community. Please come and stand or kneel at the altar, stand in your place, raise your hands, respond in your first language, however you are so moved by the Spirit. The Iona community helps us to shape our prayers today, and we thank our brothers and sisters at Iona for their gifts of liturgy and solidarity and work with and to and from the poor. I will set the intention if you would pray silently or aloud as you are so moved, then I will say, God, in your grace, if you would respond, hear our prayer. Dearly beloved, let us pray together. one, you who are three, one God in perfect community. We who are made in your image give you thanks for this time with you and with one another, as individuals and as we bring the communities of which we are a part with us in love and care. So we lift up someone whom we have met or remembered today and for whom we want to pray. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We lift up someone who is hurting today and needs our prayer. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We lift up a troubled situation in our world today. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We lift up a threatened part of creation. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. Silently, we lift up someone whom we find hard to forgive or to trust. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. With thanksgiving, we give up the joys and celebrations of our human life, lifting them up to you. God, in your grace, 
hear our prayer. We lift up ourselves that we might grow in generosity of spirit, clarity of mind, and warmth of affection. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now, as our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace of the Lord be always with you. We are glad you have come to join us this day here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and across the airwaves and internet signals. We would invite you to join us following the service for coffee hour out on the BU beach in thanksgiving for the glorious day that God has given us, free of rain for once. Uh, We'll be having coffee hour on the beach and a rousing game of bocce, so we hope you'll come and join us. We would invite you to join us on Wednesday at noon for lunch uh, with uh, Dr. Snyder to discuss his sermon this week and next, and to share a time of fellowship and a meal together. We would hope that those of you here in the chapel would let us know that you're here by signing the Ritual of Friendship, the Red Book, at the end of your pew, uh, that we can help you get to know one another better throughout the week. We would point you to our website, bu.edu chapel, for more information on our ongoing activities and for the opportunity for online giving. Now walk in Christ as Christ, walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O God, from thee. Accept these our gifts this morning for our love for you and for our love for our neighbor. Amen.
modernity and the sciences and critical thinking have not made it easier for us to read the Bible, but they have compelled us to look for God in the deepest places, the deepest places of scripture, the deepest places of our lives, the deepest places of the world, and there we can find a God who is more faithful than we would have ever imagined. The God who made us and the God who walked the earth with us in Jesus and the God who fills and surrounds us in the Holy Spirit go with us as we go into the world to serve God and our neighbor in all we do. Amen.